Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the AAF Exchange. We are joined today by Douglas Holtz-Aiken for our continued discussion on the impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic. Doug, thank you for joining us, and how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, love the podcast. Uh, it's pouring rain, and that's the forecast or as far as the eye can see, so podcasts look good right now. <laughs> yeah, I've been listening to a few today, but this will obviously be my favorite of the day. But can you actually believe this is part 20 of our COVID-19 series? It is hard to believe that. Um, I do remember the conversation when we said, well, everyone is going to have to stay home for, I think, 14 days, and, th- and then we'll get back together and, and resume business. That was many, many months ago. That might be up there with some of the worst uh, predictions we've made on on here. But I mean, who knew that this was going to be the reality? But here we are. Um, So the biggest policy news over the past week is the uh, president's executive order. Would you start by walking us through what was included in this order and how those different provisions uh, would work? So the 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 big ones are, number one, uh, replacing the now lapsed federal Unemployment insurance uh, benefit, the $600 that that on July 31st went away, uh, there uh, he took money that is in uh, FEMA's disaster relief fund, and that the disaster relief fund can be used to uh, replace things that have been lost in in a disaster. So uh, uh, you have a flood, you can rebuild a building, you can uh, get a car that was gone. It's available for a lot of flexible uses. Technically, what he is saying is, we're going to replace lost wages up to $300 for people making under uh, $104,000 a year. So that that's the, the the authority under which he can do this. But he can't do it unilaterally. The governors actually have to create a pro- program to deliver this to the, the unemployed workers. And so uh, it, it's going to have to be a, a joint effort of the federal government and uh, the, all the states. If it's going to be effective, that's going to take time to, to set up. You have to be sort of some gui- guidelines uh, put out there for the states to figure out how to do it. He also, in the executive order, invited the states to use money they had previously been given under the CARES Act that has not yet been spent to top up that $300 benefit with another $100. That would be a $400 benefit. Um, and, but again, that's going to be up to the states. They'll have to decide to do that. And even if all of this goes swimmingly, there's about five weeks worth of money total available in, in this. So it's a patch um, at best. I think the president wants to make the point that something should be done and negotiations are at a standstill. And the only thing you worry about is, uh, A, the precedent of, of you know having the executive go out and decide to do something that really feels like it should be done through, through legislation and that you spend all the time setting this up and then it goes away, and, uh, you know. What did we really accomplish in the big picture? Uh, that's that's number one. Uh, number two, I'm uh, even less enthusiastic about, um, which is the notion that um, employers should uh, defer the individual Social Security taxes uh, for the remainder of, of 2020. So um, he's essentially saying, I, as your employer, should uh, I'm not uh, c- collect your Social Security taxes. And the idea sounds appealing, which is, okay, you have more money in your paycheck and you can run off and um, uh, spend it and that'll stimulate the economy. Uh, there are any number of problems with this uh, as you as you work through it. 
number number one on the economics, you know that this is just a deferral. And so at some point you're going to have to pay your social security taxes. If we defer all your taxes through December 31st and ask you for the money on January 1st, where are you gonna get it? Well, knowing it's coming, you're gonna probably just save it up. But that just means you're not spending it. And so it doesn't really do anything for the economy. And, and so it's unlikely to be a big boost. It, it then runs into a whole series of implementation difficulties. So for example, I could still withhold the money from you, right? And I just not send it into the, the federal government. Well, that's great for me. It's not doing anything for you. So again, no economic impact. Um, or I could, you know, we could not uh, withhold it and, and you'd have the money. If you then choose to leave AAF and don't even think about it, um, I'd be on the hook for your taxes, right? The, the employee could walk and, and that's going to make employers a little hesitant to sort of yeah, do this yeah. on, a, on a large scale. So for, for listeners, the key is this is far from easy. It is far from uh, without risks um, uh, in terms of the, the collection of the taxes, and it's probably not going to have a big impact. So I, I, I wouldn't have pulled the trigger on something like this. Yeah. So that's two. He had two more. They were not orders in, in terms of executive actions. You can have orders and then you can have memoranda. And he essentially sent memoranda out to study hard what we can do on further student loan uh, forbearance and further eviction um, uh, forbearance to make sure that, that people don't uh, get tossed out of their, their rental housing or, or have to pay their loans. So th those are in process at the moment. So I know you wrote about the two bigger provisions in this, two, in two of your dishes for this week. In your Monday dish, you mentioned that this was closer to a lost wage benefit uh, rather than an unemployment be benefit. Just for the benefit of myself and listeners, what are the difference between the two practically? Um, no, no, no difference practically. You get a check for 300 bucks, it's UI, or you get a check for 300 bucks, it's lost wages. It, it just gives them the legal authority to do it. The disaster relief fund uh, cannot be used for things, uh, new things. It has to replace lost things. And so it's replacing lost wages. And that, gotcha. that's, that's the technical authority. Gotcha. And then in your other dish on Tuesday, you asked two really important questions. Do workers want this to happen? And second, if it did happen, would it work to generate additional incentives from work and employment? What do you think are the answers to these questions? Um Anecdotally, uh, my employees are not super enthusiastic about having this payroll tax and deferral go on. They, they've done the math. They know they still owe the taxes ultimately. And so why go through the hassle of, of having to save it up and everything? Just continue doing it. So I don't see a lot of um, enthusiasm for it. And, and in terms of uh, impact on spending, minimal in my view, as I, as I explained, probably not a big impact on hiring either, right? Because if it's not going to generate a lot of new business, you don't have to hire to, to, to meet that demand. And, uh, you know, having a, a, a tiny um, sale on, on labor between now and the end of the year is not the way people make permanent hiring decisions. So, um, you know, this is, it's not zero. It's always a mistake to say it'll do nothing, but it, it, this is not a powerful incentive. Mm -hmm. And I guess this all begs the question, what does this executive order actually mean for the negotiations? I mean, was was the president just trying to gain leverage or popularity with voters? I mean, there is obviously an election going on. Or is this simply necessary for the White House to jump in at this point, do something, show action, confident, get some confidence in the economy? Or was it a combination of both of those, those two things? 
one of the things that we've learned about the Trump administration and the president in particular is that it's very difficult to d disentangle what is negotiating tactics and what is policy desires. Uh, you know, they, they, they tend to be the same thing. So uh, I think this is, is best perceived as a, a tactic. It's a, a tactic to make his reelection more appealing. It's a tactic to get the negotiations jump started. He clearly has made the case for months that payroll taxes should be lower. So um, not having gotten that through uh, legislation, he did it. Yeah, I've, I've certainly heard that come up time and time again as as he's talking about this you know, pandemic and even other policy objectives. I think this is a good place to also look at the negotiations a little bit more outside of the executive order. Fox News Sunday actually had a great back-to-back -back interview with Speaker Pelosi and then Secretary Mnuchin, where they were sort of laying out the perspective on each side of the negotiations for, for the next aid package. Frankly, in my mind, it didn't sound like anything was going anywhere soon. Democrats were one place, Republicans were one place, and it was just a lot of posturing. Stay in local aid seems to be one of the biggest points of disagreement here. You wrote, again, a great dish, I think, yesterday talking about this. Democrats are pushing for the $1 trillion aid package. That number may not be based on actual state budget shortfalls. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found here? So I, I have been curious as well about the trillion dollar ask, right? You know, is this is this excessive? Is it um, what they really need? I mean, they you know, where did that trillion dollars come from? So I thought, okay, well, you know, it's time to do a little work. So roll up the sleeves uh, and and do a, just a simple little Excel exercise that compares um, what would have happened with what is actually happening and, and sort of measuring the gap. So to get a, a notion for what would have happened, I simply took the growth rate of state and local aggregate receipts um, from the beginning of, of 2017, so roughly the Trump presidency, through the first quarter of, of this year and said, okay, let's assume that the future would have been, you continue on that trend. And so that's the the, the, the world we, we never got to see because of the pandemic hit and we got a huge recession. Now we're gonna have to get a recovery. Well, what will be the actual receipts in that recession recovery? Uh, to get that, I assume that the, the aggregate receipts were the same share of GDP as they were in the first quarter of 2017. But as we know, GDP fell dramatically and is now sort of um, expected to, to uh, rise again. For that, I used the CDO projection for the economy. And so now I have two lines, one receipts that would have happened without the pandemic, two receipts that happened with the pandemic. What's the difference between them? Well, over 2020 and 2021, it's $380 billion. And so that's a, that's a serious number. I mean, that's not zero. Um, a reminder, the CARES package provided states and localities with $150 billion. So if you take this number at face value, and that's probably too much faith, but take it at face value, um, there's a $230 billion unmet need over the next two calendar years. And so that, that, that to me says, okay, now I have some idea of sort of the ballpark that we ought to be in. And, it, and it's not a ballpark that contains a trillion dollars in my view. But it's also not a ballpark that contains zero additional dollars. It, it, it's, it contains a couple hundred billion dollars. And, and so I'm looking for evidence that uh, the negotiations are moving towards something like that. And, you know, if that if it turns out it's 400 instead of 300, well, then, you know, fine. I, I, you know, the science here is pretty thin. Just trying to get an idea of roughly what's out there. You know, well, I know your dish caused a, a little bit of a uh, Twitter controversy yesterday with some actual experts weighing in and uh, 
having a conversation about it. So he spent the whole day <laughs> each other on Twitter. I mean, do some work. I mean, come on. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so in your mind, should the federal tax dollars be used to bail out state and local governments? I mean, you started saying what a fair amount might look like, but can you give us a little so, bit more in depth? So we've, we've talked about this before. There, in my mind, there are three categories of, of needs at the, the state and local level. One category of needs is uh, the response to the pandemic, you know, first responders, uh, healthcare costs, things like that. That, in my view, is what the $150 billion really sort of uh, was intended to cover for sure. And the second need, uh, lost revenue, was, is in there as well. Um, but the big number that they, they've talked about is just lost ta- uh, tax revenue. You know, economy goes down, people aren't paying sales taxes, they're not paying income taxes, and that, that's, that's what, what they're really facing. This was a, an exercise that was an attempt to get a handle on that. How big is that? Watch the economy go down, see how much uh, revenue gets lost. Um, none of those are bailouts in my view, right? You know, the, they didn't want to have uh, first responder needs. They didn't want to have health problems and no one wanted the economy to go south. It all happened and it happened not for reasons under their control. The third category, ongoing structural problems in state and local budgets where you've overpromised on pensions or, or whatever, are um, not appropriate here. And that's the part that Republicans are trying very hard to keep out of uh, the funding. And so that would be a bailout. And that's what I think there is a conceptual agreement you shouldn't do. But if the number's big enough, they might get some of it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I remember way back, maybe in part one or part two, when the question came up about the CARES Act, was the CARES Act a bailout? And you said, well, this happened through no fault of their own. So it's making sure that we continue making that distinction when working through this pandemic. Yeah, I think it's it's um, really important for people to realize this is not 2007, 2008 all over again. That was a terrible experience. That was a man-made problem. It was a self-inflicted wound that came from bad products and bad practices and all of that. And it did involve some bailouts. And people who performed poorly in the financial services sector got money. And that's the kind of reinforcement of bad behavior you don't want. We don't have any of that going on here. Like nobody really did anything wrong. You know, the economy was just hit by the virus and that's that. You know, I actually can't believe I was able to go back and recall that conversation, but I'm happy I did. (laughs) Uh, Assuming there's no deal this week or maybe even this month, to be honest with you, it's August, generally Congress does go home. It's an election year. so probably more of an incentive to go home at this point. To what extent will the economy suffer as a result? Well, it's a hard question to answer, but but I'll tell you um, uh, what little we know about this. So, so the big change um, that happened as a result of this is that the unemployment insurance benefit lapsed. So that's $18 billion a week, roughly, in uh, income that is not going to go into the, the private sector. Um, so what happens to people? Well, um, if they had never really planned to have that benefit, if they didn't have it in February, no one, it was invented in March, and you know they had sort of ma- made their, their spend plans for the year, it's probably not going to have a pretty big, very big impact. Um, if it lapses for only a short time, it might not have a very big impact. We know that the private sector has $2 trillion in the bank that it didn't have in February. So all of that money that's come in, the savings rate got as high as 23%. And, you know, the people have been tucking it away. So so as a as a whole, the private sector is pretty well um, 
pre prepared to sort of continue to to spend where it can, and, and the where it can depends on the virus. Um, so that's the good news. Um, uh, and it doesn't mean every household is going to be fine, though. You're going to hear stories of people who desperately needed the additional money, and that's that's going to be a real phenomenon. But I think in, in terms of the sort of macro picture of, of will the economy continue to recover, the answer is going to be yes. Um, it might have recovered a bit faster if it was still there. And that's the case that you're going to hear from uh, folks who are advocating for uh, keeping the 600 or at least keeping something in place. Mm -hmm. We saw this uh, today. Uh, we saw for the first time uh, new claims for unemployment insurance uh, come in under a million dollar, under a million people this week. Um, that's a, a real step in the right direction. Um, as it turns out, um, 600,000 a week was the high watermark of the last recession. So we're still at 900,000. We have a lot of people, but we are at least going in the right direction. And that suggests the economy is, in fact, continuing to recover. Mm -hmm. Speaking of numbers, last week, uh, we discussed the July jobs numbers the day before they came out. Did those numbers have any impact on the negotiations? Um, and if so, what direction did they put ne push negotiators on? I don't think they did at all, to be honest. Um, had had there been um, uh, a dramatic uh, number on, in either direction, a job loss, well, then huge amounts of pressure on Republicans and the White House to cave, um, a big jobs number, eight, nine, you know, some, something like that, um, you know, that there's no need for this. I mean, and then, we're, you know, the Democrats are going to have to give up uh, substantially. As it turned out, it was a modest number that, um, you know, showed continual recovery, reflected uh, the, the outbreaks in the South and West, and sort of left things where we were. We sort of knew that anyway, and, and that's what we got. All right, so final bit of news that we heard this week. We learned that Russia and President Putin claimed that uh, they have a COVID-19 vaccine that would start immunization in October. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a vaccine expert. Uh, I'm not an a, a, a infectious disease expert, but the infectious disease experts that who have spoken about this are extremely skeptical uh, uh a as to whether it really is there and b certainly whether it's safe and effective um russia has a, uh, delivered no data on uh the performance of the, the vaccine and trials it has admitted it, it's not done so-called phase three trials which are on, on humans so you know i think most people are discounting that as an important step for the globe in dealing with what is genuinely a global pandemic. And, and the, most of the attention is really focused on the six vaccines that uh, the taxpayers have now invested a fair amount of money in. And we've seen some remarkable progress uh, in terms of the development of those vaccines. I think um, when we go back and, and write the history of this episode carefully, we'll begin to understand the staggering accomplishment that has uh, been achieved in the pharmaceutical industry. It's just uh, a, a, an understanding of, of a virus, getting its, its genetic code, beginning the, the vaccines, staging trials. There, there have been no steps skipped, but it has gone so fast. It's amazing. And, and they have, in fact, um, you know, they have vaccines. They, they, and three of them are now entering phase three trials or are already in phase two or in phase three trials. And the government has paid for and they are manufacturing hundreds of millions of doses on the hope that they will prove to be safe and effective. If so, they're ready. Mm -hmm. And if they're not safe and effective, they, they'll be disposed of. So 
that's that's an, in my view an appropriate roll of the dice, right? You want to have it if you, if, if it's a, if it's going to work. One question I just thought of as you were going through all that is, what about the distribution side of this? I mean, obviously you have to get it to people. Is the president thinking about those sorts of things and what sort of infrastructure you need in place to get it to people? The name for this effort in the administration is Operation Warp Speed, right? Try to, to get this at, at a remarkable pace. It includes, yes, development of the vaccine and production of the vaccine, but then there will be questions of distribution you can't vaccinate everybody the first day. So the first thing is a set of priorities, who, who's going to have, be first in line. Uh, and so those are, are being developed as we speak. And then there will be, how do we get it to them? The, the genuine distribution question. And, and that's under uh, planning as well. So uh, the, the idea is to arrive at, at late 2020, ready to flick the switch and get the vaccine out. Fair enough. Well, Doug, thank you for joining us. What what fun plans do you have for the uh, for the weekend ahead? Well, we were hoping to um, have a socially distanced drink with some old friends uh, in their backyard, um, you know, and that relies on it, the the weather being better. And so the forecast for rain is a little disappointing. My fingers are crossed that it's wrong. Yeah, as you mentioned before, I've been up in Vermont the last couple of weeks, but uh, I just came back to D.C. and it does not look very appealing outside the last couple of days I've been here. So I might be turning turning back and going going back home. I have a, a dog named Cleo who's a fantastic dog, but who is currently on strike for going outside. She's had it with the rain. <laughs> Fair enough. I think that's where we're all at. Doug, thank you for joining us again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.